Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, and we're coming to you live on 24-7 and numerous syndicated radio podcast networks, 26 global audio and video platforms, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio. Shall I go on? No. There's just too many to list. In fact, we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and number two on Feedspot out of the top 60 and number two again on CaringVillage.com. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today. Uh, Rosie Mankus is Mankus, I'm sorry, <laughs> is a life coach, motivational speaker and author of Find Your Joy and Run With It. A heartwarming memoir about overcoming her second battle with cancer, her second battle, the transitioning of her mother into an assisted living facility, ouch, I've done that, and the unexpected loss of her brother, all within one year. Wow. Rosie's recovery from these major challenges inspired her to become a life coach in order to help people pull through significant adversity and life challenges. Rosie is a resident of New Jersey where she lives with her husband. She is the mother of two grown sons. Well, thank God they're grown. <laughs> but before we get started, I want to take this moment to thank my last week's guests, Gail McDonald and Marilyn Bushy, authors of Retirement Your Way, a great show. Just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of our other 26 networks mentioned above. All right, enough of that. Rosie, welcome to the Caregiver Dave Show. We're so excited to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. Really happy to be here. And I always like to ask my guests just who is Rosie Mancus and why was she placed on this earth? Well, Rosie Mancus is, um, as you shared, a life coach, uh, author of Find Your Joy and Run With It, and a speaker, and somebody that has experienced significant adversity in her life and wants to share how she was able to make that transition from um, despair and despondency to emotional wellness and finding joy in every day. And that's what I love to do is to share my story and how I've been able to pull through um, a lot of challenges and hopefully help people along the way. Now, we, we want to hear your story. And why don't you just start from the beginning? Were you diagnosed with cancer first? And then your mother was transitioned into an assisted living. You were her caregiver before that, and then it started from the home to the facility. How, how did that go? What's the transition uh, sequence there? So as you shared, oh. I am a two-time cancer survivor. In 2008, I had um, stage 1A lung cancer and had 10% oh, of my, my right lung removed. And then in 2015, I was diagnosed with um, a stage zero breast cancer, but I tested positive for a breast cancer gene. And yeah. this was right at, around the same time that we were trying to make the transition of my mom into an assisted living facility. So if you can imagine, my mom was very fearful. She was very resistant. She did not want to leave the only life she knew, which was living in Brooklyn, 
and moved to a facility in New Jersey closer to us. Um, I'm her only child that is living in the area. So it's hard to be going back and forth to Brooklyn, whereas her care needs are are growing, um, not only with the dementia, but she had some digestive issues and some hemoglobin issues. And imagine taking that responsibility and trying to make this transition at the same time as going through biopsies, lumpectomies, and then ultimately a a, a double mastectomy and reconstructive surgery. So That's amazing. Um, How bad was it trying to get her out of her home and into a facility? I know it was really tough my mother and then my mother-in-law uh, you almost have to trick them or deceive them or lie to them uh, because you know they they just think everyone has this opinion of facilities nursing home you know nurse cratchit don't mm-hmm. whatever you do don't send me to a nursing home i'll die there and i you know a lot of guilt and so on what was going on with you guys like the whole host of that <laughs> stuff so i mean you just, just described it all huh? <laughs> yeah actually my mom um when we were bringing her into the facility, um, we introduced it as a trial. We didn't introduce it as, you know, you have to live here the rest of your life because she just was not going to have that. So there's a um, little deception there. It's okay to be a little, a little deceptive. A little deceptive, yeah. <laughs> but um, when she mm. went actually to the physical location, the um, nurse, the social worker, and the director of the facility. So can you imagine like... <clears throat> 90 years of combined experience said that it was the worst, most difficult transition they had ever experienced. Just because um, of her attitude and how she handled it. She was it. just, oh, just wow. was very, very upset. I want to go home. She wins the prize, huh? Yeah. Middle of the night, um, phone calls. Um, Dementia is pretty tricky because you could get the person on board with, you know, okay, we'll do this trial, <clears throat> so to speak. Right. And then they forget. And they say, I never said I would do it. So it's, it was very tricky, very, um, very hard transition. If I, and, and, you know, I remember I was just telling somebody recently, I remember the day that we moved her in, or so to speak, we tried to move her in. And uh, one of the, the workers there, uh, staff said, why don't you and your bro- brother go out for lunch? And then, you know, let us have some time with her. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, we'll go to lunch and we'll get back and it'll be, you know, <laughs> we'll be good. And it wasn't good for eight to nine months. Oh really, gosh. really difficult transition. And that had to be hard on you guys. Yeah, it was, it was pretty hard, uh, especially as I said, I was going through, um, you know, a cancer journey at the same time. So yeah, um, you're not supposed to be feeling stress. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the thing that helped me though, was, um, you know, I was really very emotional. Like, mm. you know, it's a, it's a hard thing. Your mom, your dad, you're pulling at your heartstrings. It's something that you really don't want to do. You're, you're transitioning from a role of, you know, you're the parent now, so to speak, and they're the child. Yeah. So there's a whole mourning that goes along <clears> with when, when you, your loved one has dementia or it starts to have, starts to ail because you're losing a part of them, so to speak. But I think when I stopped, when <clears> I started to take it more, oh, the emotion out of it and, and look at it more as a, I need to do this. I need to, I don't want to say make it like a business decision, but I had to get the emotion out of the situation. That's the only way I was able to make it through. Um, because um, the other thing I will say is self-care also. Um, yeah. One of the things I learned along the way is that when I would have a visit with my mom and she would say, I want to go home, I want to go home, I would use, I, I think in the industry it's called redirection, but I called it deflection. So I would say, mom, you know, I'm really tired. Can we talk about this tomorrow? Kind of like when you do with your kids when they wanted yeah. to go to Toys R Us or something, you know? 
And the other thing was if she was really, if it was really tugging on me emotionally, the visit, if I was visiting with her and I couldn't do it, like I just couldn't do it. I would just pick myself up and say, you know what? I just got a a phone call from work. I need to go back to work because I just needed to, to, for my own self-preservation, I need to to walk away. And once I started to do those kinds of things, I developed my own little self-care kind of package, if you will of things that I would do to, to take care of myself. And it made it just a little bit easier to do. Yeah. You talk about a business decision or unemotional. That's uh, what they do in the airlines. You know, I remember the very first time I flew on a plane and the, I heard them say, you know, in the event of an emergency, put your oxygen mask on first before you help your loved one. And I just had this vision of the plane going down and people screaming and the oxygen masks coming down and, and my little four-year-old just hysterical Right. I'm going to sit there and put my mask on first. Mm. No way am I going to do that. <laughs> but yet they say that you've got to do it. Otherwise, I'll black out. She'll black out. And then we're both in in a pickle, as they say. As they say. So how do you remove the emotion from such an emotional decision? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, mm. it's not easy. I mean, as I said, I, I really needed to... Um, you know, sit with the, the feelings. I, I did, um, I did a lot of journaling during that time about how, how bad it felt, this whole thing about this whole, yeah. you know, loss of my mom. Um, you know, I, and I say, as I say, p- people, you know, have asked me and if you feel the need to seek out professional help. But the thing is, is that at the end of the day, this is, if this is really necessary, which it was, I mean, my mom's dementia had progressed to the point where, you know, we, we had to take her license away, of course, because she was forgetting. We thought she might forget how to drive or how yeah. to get home or where she had hurt somebody. Um, <clears throat> and she had other issues as well. So I had to get on board in a way that, you know, make clear, concise decisions and, and not doubt them and just say, I ha- we have to do this. It's not like there's anybody else that can so you're a life coach. Did you do this before your caregiving experience or did caregiving make you a life coach? Well, you know what made me a life coach? Um, what really made me a life coach was having two cancers found in the very early stages. And I figured if I, I and knock wood, I'm a knock person that knocks wood. Um, but my felt that if my higher power was allowing me to find these two cancers early on and neither of them required treatment, that he probably wants me to stick around for some reason. And I thought that the best way that I could stick around and actually make a difference is if I, I served and helped others. And that's why I became a life coach. So did you go to support groups or did you start one? I mean, uh, did support groups come into your life at all uh, when you needed support? When I needed support, um, what I didn't tell you, Dave, is, um, and it, it probably is um, maybe shared by uh, um, the person that works with me. So in that one year, I had the, what I shared with you before, I had the cancer, my mom's tra- transition into the assisted living facility. And right when things started to settle down, my 58-year-old healthy brother died in a horrific accident. Um, brother? My brother. Wow. Now, if you imagine all three of these things happen in a one-year period of time, when the last thing happened, my friends didn't think I was coming back from it, and I wasn't even sure myself. And that's when I went limping and crawling into a therapist's office because I couldn't do, I couldn't just do it all myself. And she helped me with the, the grief, and the, um, the fears, and the emotions, the emotional tug from my mom. 
And uh, then I use some of the skills that I learned from becoming a life coach in order to help me to um, make it to that place where I wanted to get to, which is away from that adversity to emotional wellness. I do want to talk about grief and how you got through the grief process, but where was your father during all this stuff? My father died many years ago. He died in Uh, in 1992. So it's... um, And of course, she probably thought he was still there. No, you know what? She she did not. Um, but I will tell you one thing is that um, the only good thing that came out of dementia is the fact that, A, I didn't have to share my cancer journey with her. Um, what, back in 2008, she was well. And she when I had my lung surgery and she dropped everything and came to take care of my young family and my, myself, to, uh, yeah. she was driving at the time too. But then when I had cancer in 2015, I didn't think anything good would come out of her knowing it. So I didn't share it with her. And then when my brother passed, which is, you know, you know, her, my brother call, um, she stopped understanding time. So she didn't know if she didn't speak to Carl in a week, a month, a day. And we decided not to share with her that he passed away. We didn't want her to, to actually cheat. My, my other brother died when he was 38. So she, I didn't want to see her bury another child. It just was, we didn't see anything good coming from it. And last week she said, how's Carl? I haven't spoken to him in a while. And I said, he's doing well. He's, you know, he's still in South South Carolina with Lori, his wife. And she said, oh, okay. So. When you were looking at an assisted living facility, what is the process? How did you know? Because a lot of people like us (laughs) waited too long because who wants to make that decision, you know? And it wasn't until my mother started calling me up in the middle of the night and because uh, she couldn't read her clock anymore. So we got her a digital clock. We figured, oh, that'll solve it. But then she didn't know what was AM and what was PM. And and do I eat when it's light outside or do I, uh, you know, lunch and, or do I eat when it's dark outside? Because I went to lunch and, you know, it's dark and there's no one around. And and um, what was it for you? Um, so I went to visit a whole bunch <clears throat> of places. And I, I have to be the type of person that really, likes to do a lot of research and come up with questions. So I, I wrote out a whole bunch of different things that I was looking for. So in other words, when I went to a place I wanted to know was if they had 24 hour um, on call nurses, did they have, uh, um, you know, the ratio, what's the ratio of staff to resident. When I went to visit places, I would see how did the um, staff respond to a resident's request? Were they authoritative? Were they compassionate? How long did it take to respond? Were there specific smells that, you know, when you go into a place and you just know, or did the people look like their, their clothes were clean? Or, you know, but did they look like they had stains all over their clothes? Did they look like they were, you know, being cared for in that way? Um, and I would go, I went to about 20 places. And I say, I will say the one mistake that I did make is that if I went to a place and I walked in and it didn't feel right, I thought if I came back a different day, it would be right. And it just never was right, you know, specifically. But we, yeah, that I went is, to that's a, a good point. You should never make an appointment for a tour. You should always pop in unannounced, say, oh, well, I was just in the neighborhood. I assume that's what you did. I did. And I would go back, if I narrowed it down to places that I thought might be suitable, I would go back at different times of the day because, you know, an exercise class versus a lunchtime versus a social hour is going to be different. Um, I also asked the, um, family members, 
of the residents. You know, I would walk in and there was a social hour and there was family members there. I'd ask them, so what's your take on this place? How do you feel about, you know, I think a lot also for me, I felt like um, I, one of the big aha things like that I, I never expected in my entire life was that they allowed, and I guess it's common, but I didn't know this. They allowed male um, companions or um, aides to shower female residents. Mm. And that was like eye-opening to me. And I, and I put it, you know, my mom, I, she just, you know, I didn't want that for her and she didn't want it for herself. And I made it perfectly clear that that wasn't something that we wanted to happen, but it should be a female aide that helps my mom with the showering. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, different things that, that went into this decision because, you know, uh, if your loved one is in a wheelchair versus having dementia, there's a whole different host of needs that are there. Um, my mom is a very social, my mom is still with us. She actually lives now, same place, but she's in the memory care now because she's, um, her, her uh, dementia has progressed to the point where she just couldn't keep up in assisted living anymore. She was, um, we didn't really realize that how much she was being redirected through the day. And the memory care unit is much simpler and, you know, more. Um, what what do you like mean redirected? <clears throat> so when like she would go to the med station like 25 times in the day mm. and then she would think that it was time to go for lunch and it was, you know, 10 a.m. Um, the memory care section is completely they smaller, simpler you. and just very um I happen to believe my mom's memory care where she is, is the, the staff is just very interactive with them and uh, very compassionate. And that was a really big thing for me. So when you go and looking to see how the staff treats the requests of the residents, um, how do you do that? Do you just sit back quietly and observe or are there other ways of doing that? You know, invariably, if you're going, being walked around mm. on a tour, so to speak, or even an impromptu kind of thing, somebody's going to ask for something like I need to go to the bathroom. I need this or whatever. And I would just listen to see what, oops, sorry, me. So my phone never rings. <laughs> sorry about that. And I would just listen to see what they said, you know, like, were they, were they more, um, were they interacting with them and saying, yes, I'll be right there. Carmel or I'll be right there. And, or were they just not ignoring them? And a couple right. of places I went to, I was, I would say, wow, I can't believe that that person was asking to go to the bathroom and you waited to the point where they had an accident. Like, wouldn't it be easier to have helped them? You know, so it actually happened. It happened a couple of times. And their answer was their answer was, oh, we didn't realize, you know, it was such an immediate need or something like that. And then they were off the list, of course, after that. Yeah, that's so true. And of course, the smell test is very important. You know, see if the wheelchairs are just thrown into the aisles and they're staring at the walls or if there's actual, you know, exercise classes or jigsaw puzzles or something that they're doing to uh, inspire them. I like when they bring kids around, little little kids singing and stuff. You can see people just light up, you know, that normally the lights are on and nobody's home. So that's how you tell a good. And they don't grow on trees, do they? I mean, I... I'd say I, I wouldn't put my cat in most of them. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But if you just do what you do, do your homework, you know, and take the time. And uh, sometimes the really good ones, you know, you're always looking for one close to your house to make it convenient for you, but that doesn't always happen. 
if it's further away and it's easier for her, that's, that's the deal, mm-hmm. you know, even if yeah. you have to drive an hour or two hours to go see them, it's better for them. Would you agree? I agree. I agree. You know what? You, you could go to a place and it could be <clears throat> this lavish looking place with, you know, just brand new everything. And then you, you go in and it just, it's not right. It doesn't feel right. And, you, you know, you really have to make those decisions based on your gut feel. And as I said before, I don't, I, I would encourage people that I'm going in, if they walk in and they don't feel it's right, then it's not right. It's not going to be right tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. There's benefits of small places. There's benefits of large places, even, you know, converted homes and stuff where there's only six beds or something like that. You just never know where the good one's going to be. So you talk about um, being in denial about the progression of someone's illness. And a lot of people have done that. And I've probably done it. You know, my, my mother's car keys should have been taken away a lot sooner than they were because she got into an accident and confessed that she forgot which one was the gas and which one was the brake. You know, don't wait that long. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anything to say about uh, denial? Oh, they're okay. They're just a little forgetful or whatever. Yeah, I mean, mm. honestly, when this when this disease starts, it's not going to get better, right? It's it's going to get worse. So when I talk about denial, so we, you know, she was forgetful at the beginning, mm. and then we said, okay, we need to take a deeper look into this. So we would take a visit and see if her clothes, like she had stains on her clothes, which meant she wasn't washing her clothes or body odor means that, you know, I, I learned along the way that people with dementia don't really like getting into the shower. They'll kind of like huddle in the corner. And at one point we got my mom a, a full-time companion. Well, we first started with a, a part-time help that came in a couple of days a week. Then we got a full-time and she would send us photos that the shower gel never changed. Like this, the amount that was, she just wasn't going to use it, you know? Um, and then the food situation, like was, was there any food in the house? We started to learn that she, at one point she started to eat cookies for dinner. She wasn't cooking for herself or food in the refrigerator yeah. when they can't put time together, right. They can't decide if this needs to be thrown out in a certain amount of time. Um, I was the one that went and brought her to a neurologist and made, made him do a cognitive test because I knew she shouldn't drive anymore. And I knew, of course, she was going to fail, but it needed to be done. And it, it stunk at the time. She was very upset. Her pushback was tremendous. But, you know, I needed a doctor to do it. We couldn't, she wasn't going to do it on her own. Um, but I think the tipping point for us, and when we knew, like, time out, this is really, she needs to, to the, we need to make some decisions, was with the meds. You know, she was in charge of her meds for a really long time. And then we went to the house one day and she was face planted on the kitchen table because she had put two lunestas and an oxycodone in the same vial. And then we said, this, now this is life-threatening. Now we need to make changes. So that's when we made the transition. We moved away yeah. from what we were doing to something that we knew would have a full staff to take care of her. And then, um, you know, a lot of people, and like myself, when I first became a caregiver to my wife, um, thought I could do this. You know, I'm a mechanic. I, I fix things. But a lot of people aren't really realistic and they underestimate how much they can do, uh, you know, when, they're, when their um, abilities maybe aren't in line with the needs that they're about to face. Talk about that. Yeah. So for me, <clears throat> you know, as I was saying before, I, I realized that because I was going through this cancer journey, um, my mom's needs were like up here. So besides the dementia, she had this digestive problem, which 
could potentially cause her to soil her clothing. Um, and also she had her hemoglobin levels were, were um, very, very low. At one point she was hospitalized. So I realized that my ability to care for her was, was not a possibility at that point. You know, I'm going through major surgery and, and lots of surgeries, you know, having all these different things happen to me at the same time. Um, and that's when we decided that this was what was the need was much greater, her needs than one person or me and my husband, let's say, so to speak, could do. My siblings at the time both lived in, um, one was in Vegas at the time, another one was in South Carolina. And I was the one that was closest and was living in New Jersey, you know, the, the next state over. My mom was in New York. Um, and that, and so she needed to come closer to me in order for, for us to get her suitable care. Yeah. Well, thank God she's got you, huh? Do you have any siblings? So I was, I was one of four, my brother, uh, Tommy died back in 93 and my brother Carl passed during that, uh, that awful year, 2016. And who's left? I have a sister. She lives in the Las Vegas part of the year and, yeah. and the New Jersey part of the year. So is that why you were the chosen one? Because you were geographically closer? Yeah. And also, um, you know, in general, uh, we have a very close relationship, my mom and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were the closest. There was no, there really was no way that my siblings could be doing, um, you know, the, the tours or anything because they were, as I said, I my know. sister was living. During that time, she was still living in Vegas for that portion of the year, and my brother was in South Carolina. But they they were very helpful during the whole transition. Were they? Yeah. So how did you have so much time to do all the stuff that needed to be done? You weren't working? Um, Well, I was working part-time, and I was going through this transitional um, with my mom, and at the same time, going through all the, the whole cancer thing. I can't even tell you how I did it. I just did it. I mean, I think you just rise up when you need to. It's, you don't even have a choice sometimes, right? You have to do what you have to do. So how did you take care of your self-care? How did you keep from burning out? Or maybe you did burn out and you had to come out of burning out. How, well, tell me the story there. So my, my, I started self-care. I didn't even know what self-care was until yeah. that point. And, you know, part of the self-care was the, moving away from the emotional part of it and doing the deflection, as I shared before, and or leaving when a visit was not going the right way and it was too emotionally tugging at me. But then I developed this like list of me time must-dos and I've started that back then and continued. So that is the, you know, when I was well enough, I, I would have to move my body three times a day, uh, three times a week, uh, exercise. I also practice gratitude and happened for a long time. Uh I wear a bracelet. It's called the blessings bracelet. It has four beads on it. So every day I acknowledge four blessings in my life. Mm. And then um, somebody back then, when I was going through this whole emotional toll with everything, told me that I should start meditating. And I was like, well, no way. I had like a marching band going on in my head. There's just Mm -hmm. no way that's happening. But I did it and I stuck with it. And um Last month, I celebrated 14,000 minutes meditating with Headspace. Um, And then mindfulness is another part of that whole thing. But um, one thing that I think is also important is acts of kindness to others, because when you do that, the person's so appreciative, but you get back tenfold. But then the other thing I did was I started to do acts of kindness to myself. 
So every day since I started this whole me time must do thing, I write down today, I will be kind to myself by doing blank. And then I fill in blank and it doesn't have to be oh. something big. It could be like, uh, you know, uh, sitting outside, reading a book with the sun shining or yoga or bubble bath, whatever it might be. But every day I make that effort of take that time and do something that's an act of kindness to myself. So that's my self-care regimen. Well, how often did you feel guilty about things that you weren't doing or you should have been doing or um, tell us about managing guilt? Yeah, guilt is, is a hard one, you know, but and you're referring in terms of what, what, re, what respect are you referring to guilt? You know, caregivers can feel guilty about anything and everything. So you just <laughs> tell yeah. me what you are feeling guilty about. You know, I, I felt guilty about the whole thing because my mom didn't yeah. want to be there. So there's a big guilt right then and there. But there's I have nothing to you can do about it, right? It's really nothing I could do about it. But I, I tell a story. Um, so it took about eight months. And there were a lot of times that I would leave there and I would sit in my car and cry, you know. But then one day my mom we were sitting around at her social hour, which is at three o'clock in the assisted livings uh, community. And she said to me, you see that lady over there? And I said, yeah. She says, she's never happy. She's always complaining. She says, I like it here. I have a three-bedroom apartment. They serve nice meals and they have activities and social hour. And I just turned away and I started crying. And I just said, I'm really happy that you, you, you made that decision, mom, that you decided to come here. And that was like a big turning point because she, she had settled in. Because she was like that other woman, right? She was that other woman. She was more <laughs> explosive than, than and doesn't woman. remember being that other woman. No. And she always knew who you were or not in the end or, or no, she's still alive, right? So my mom's still here. Um, we're starting to see the little um, parts that are going away. Um, recently, this was a real tough one for me. Um, she asked me, uh, do I have children? And then she then another visit recently. Did she know you were her daughter? She asked me, she, she, she does. But then one day, a couple of weeks ago, she said, um, I can't remember. Are you my daughter? Hmm. But then it comes back yeah. and that's how it goes. But people that like other people think, oh, she's just a little repetitive. She's great. But we see when you're the close one, you see that window of that person, that little piece yeah. that, you know, drifts away. Well, how did and that make you feel when she said, are you my daughter? I, I don't even know. I kept it together and I said, yes. And I, sh- and I took her through her children's names mm-hmm. and my husband was sitting next to me. And then my, my husband walked her back to, um, cause I usually take her out of the memory care area into the assisted area because it's, it's much more sociable and stuff. Yeah. And he walked her back and then I went into the car and I cried, you know, it's just a little piece that is going away. And I think, um, you know, it's important to get those things out, you know, whatever way we either cry or, or write about them or whatever it might be, because yeah. we get these windows of um, good times where she's just on. And then other days where, you know, something like that will happen where she'll say, she looks at me and she said, do you have children? And, yeah. you know, she, she knows my sons, Greg and Jordan, you know, she knows she, you know, yeah. by my side through my raising of them. 
Yeah, you're bringing up some memories that, that I went through. We all go through those with a dementia patient. Uh, and we try to forget about them. Uh, the, the most difficult thing, I think, is the role reversal. You know, we're the parent, they're the child. That's tough for them. And it's really tough for us. Um, how did you deal with it? How did she deal with it? I don't think necessarily that um, she gave a lot of pushback in terms of um, she doesn't like to be told what to do. You know, I don't think but anybody she never told does. you uh, you're not my mother or anything like that. Mm, you know, when at certain times when she was upset, she would say it, um, you know, it's just this whole evolution that you just, you know, it's hard to go through. It's really hard to go through. Um, you know, my mom was my best friend. I mean, if anything exciting happened to me, I would call my mom. Or if I was struggling with something, you know, in my life, I would call my mom. You know, when I had children, she came to my house to show me how to take care of an infant. You know, I didn't know anything about babies. And then oh. that whole transition happens. And it's, I'm not going to lie, it's hard. It's not easy. Yeah. But it, you know, it has to happen because the person just cannot be living independently anymore. Yeah, well, your mother obviously loved you and you uh, did, she did a lot for you. And it's, it was a great honor to pay her back, you know, when she needed you, when she yeah. was helpless. And I, yeah. I always kid around with all my kids, even when they were very little. I says, you know, someday you're going to have to change my diaper. And they say, ooh, dad. Mm-hmm. And I just reminded my daughter yesterday, who's 40 something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was giving her some money to buy a car that she didn't have. And she goes, you're a great dad. I says, yeah, but great enough to change my diaper. She goes, that's the plan. <laughs> that's funny. You know, I have um, them. My, my son, uh, my youngest son, Jordan, has a bunch of friends um, that come to my house because I'm Italian. You don't know for my, my last name. That's my married name, I guess. But and I cook that for them. I cook Italian meals. And then I just say, say, thank you, Rosie. Thank you. And I'm like, who's going to take care of me when I'm in the nursing home? They go, we know, we know, we are. <laughs> wow. Great minds think alike. <laughs> well, we've run out of time. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't that you'd like to share before we go? Uh, well, let's talk about your book and uh, why you wrote it, what you hope to accomplish by people reading it, et cetera, and where they can get it. All right. Right. So my book is called Find Your Joy and Run With It. The reason I wrote it, I thought it was just to be cathartic for myself and to heal through this whole thing. Like a journal. Yes. It's actually started as a journal. Mm -hmm. But what I found is that it's it's about all those transitions, you know, trans, you know, there's a, there was a year of loss for me, my mom, losing my mom, not physically, but mentally to dementia, the loss of my brother, the loss of my breasts from breast cancer and how I, the things, the things I did and the tools and resources I use in order to make it through all those things. And people come to me at book signings or even just email me and they say that they've used, they've taken things that I use and the, the things that I did in the book and integrated it into their lives. And I was like, wow, that's amazing feedback because I really just wrote it for myself. But if it could help other people and if people are looking for an inspirational read and also with some funny laugh out loud moments, check out my book. It's available on Amazon. Um, again, find your joy and run with it. And also my website, which is my name, rosiemankes.net. Mankes, M-A-N-K-E-S, right? K-E-S, yes. R-O-S-I-E, Rosie Mankes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great show and we learned so much and you have a great story. 
and I, I believe that caregivers will be blessed by it. Um, and again, a reminder that all our live shows become recorded podcasts. Um, just all you have to do is uh, look at the link down below. If it says uh, like, then please like us because it will help the algorithms uh, have more people listen to it. And don't forget to check out my membership website, caregiverdave.com. That's also where all the shows are. It's a free membership support community with lots of tools and resources. I wish I had it when I was a caregiver for the first time. And because I'm still 25 years in, so I'm teaching you stuff that I learned the hard way. So don't learn it the hard way. Let me make all the mistakes for you. (laughs) And please check out all the other platforms that we're on. As I said, YouTube, uh, Spreaker, gosh, there's too many. I can't even remember. So again, to all my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in each and every week and making us the number one caregiver podcast on the internet. So until next week, same time, same channel. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dave. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial I don't believe this is happening. Anger, oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening. To a form of bargaining, how can I get out of this? To depression, which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. 